The following is a fourth-hand production. They say I'm disturbed. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spread. I think we're getting into a weird area here. Will you tell these fools I'm not crazy? This hysteria. You can't handle the truth. 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 Brain is gone. This is Hysteria 51. The truth is out there. It's alive. But you won't find it here. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Welcome in Hysteria Nations, the podcast that believes the only good airplane to hijack is Con Air. This is Hysteria 51. The stewardess, what's the in-flight movie today? <laughs> we caught the plane, man! Welcome to Con Air. Broadcasting from the lower fourth dimension, otherwise known as Chicago, I'm one of your captains on this flight to nowhere. My name is John Goforth. Alongside is my co-captain, Mr. Brent Cameron Poe Hand. You gonna lower yours? Sorry, boss, but there's only two men I trust. One of them's me. Yeah, it's not you. <laughs> I'm really glad we had the opportunity to involve Nicolas Cage in this week's show. It's been way too long, John. Good call, baby doll. I couldn't agree more. Not long enough, if you ask me. That other cranky voice you just heard is the show's head researcher and biggest insurance liability, <laughs> Conspiracy Bot. See, Bot, what's your problem with Nicolas Cage? Last time he was on the show, he told me if I ever spoke to him again, he would melt me down to slag and turn me into a hoverboard for Kal-El. Well, that's aggressive. What'd you say to him? That I'd rather be melted down to slag and turned into a hoverboard for Kal-El than watch one more of his newer movies. Have you seen these things? They're awful. What? <laughs> He's got a point there, John. <laughs> Can't argue with you. Uh, listen, uh, there have been some real bombs as of late for old Mr. Cage. There was some bombs real early, too. Remember the uh, the vampire movie he did? Where he was, like, oh, going fucking God, that was, that was absolutely dreadful. Like, didn't he re- recently have, like, a um, a rapture movie, too? Oh, yeah, he redid the um, Left Behind Movies, yeah, where he was on a plane or whatever, yeah. The, he was a pilot, maybe? I don't know. Didn't watch him. I one apologize. of his lower budget flicks that I did enjoy from a few years back, did you ever see Knowing? No. So, basically, he could see like five seconds into the future. So, obviously, he couldn't predict things mm-hmm. uh, because that's not enough time, but, you know. Dark! You, can, you can dodge a bullet, <laughs> yeah. you know, things like that. But my, I think my favorite Nick Cage movie, I don't know if it's my favorite, one of the best that nobody talks about is Snake Eyes. Well, you know what? I think we have uh, met our quota on Nick Cage for the week here. (laughs) And and, 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 especially with all the awful movies lately. Not to mention Captain Curly's violin. And on that note, we're going to get all the way past Nick Cage (laughs) and the IMDb portion of this show and say hello to our guest. What is up, Mike Gonzalez? Welcome, Mike Gonzalez, to the show. Everybody's favorite playwright, author, um, Uh, renaissance man. Follow up to a Nick Cage discussion. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Happy to be back, guys. How's it going? Real good. You've been busy we here with uh, a little thing called Larkspur. Why don't you tell us about it? Wow! Here we go, ready or not. The following content is sure to be hot. The information we'd like to present. Now it's time for another segment. Uh, my podcast is called Larkspur Underground, uh, which will be eventually releasing at some point. It's called Underground, so you know it's got a lot of street cred. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> um, you know, we're we're still recording. We're almost there. Uh, it's going to be a really cool, uh, spooky 
kind of a serial killer mystery thing that I think a lot of people are going to like. If you like Silence of the Lambs and if you liked the uh, the serial podcast on NPR, uh, it's kind of right in, right in those uh, alleys. Now, I hear you branch out for some badass voice talent in this one. Um, you know, hotel workers and then locals and things like that. Just some, some, some real badass fellas. I think people are going to hear some voices that they know and, and or love. Uh, at least no, not so much trust, yeah. but no. Uh, <laughs> now, but you, you mentioned you, you likened it to silence of the lambs or, or serial. This is a narrative fiction podcast, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like a, almost like a radio drama. It's uh you know, kind of NPR style. Uh, the host of the show is working to solve this mystery about this brutal serial killer. So, you know, when you listen to it, it sounds like you are listening to an actual real NPR podcast. That's what I'm hoping, you know, aside from the, the millions of listeners here that just heard me give that away, I'm hoping everyone else that hears it, you know, has to question reality a little bit. That sounds awesome. That sounds awesome. I love kind of suspension of disbelief stuff. That, that, that'll be fun. Anywhere where I can hear myself. That's why I, I play our show repeat nonstop. Oh, so, so, now I can throw on some Larks for Underground, too. So that's what you were hinting at when, when you said voices they know, because no one at home picked up on oh. that. Thank you for, yeah, thank you for clearing that up. Hey, you know what I got to say is whenever this comes out, one of the best places to probably listen to this on is going to be CastBox. CastBox. How's my that favorite for a segue? Oh, you're back to segues. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Castbox FM. Go to castbox.fm to listen on your desktop or download the app. iOS, Android, it's all there. It's the orange one, the new app, the orange one, over 5 million downloads. And they can listen and like and review every episode of Hysteria 51 on there, John, each individual episode. Maybe we'll let them go ahead and listen to Larkspur Underground when it comes out. But for now, just Hysteria 51. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's the only thing you need. In life is Hysteria 51 and maybe some Larks per one day. So if you're shopping for a new app to listen to all your favorite podcasts on, make sure and check out CastBox in the App Store on iOS, Android, anywhere fine apps are sold. There you go. Although it's free. So we got that out of the way. Seba, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we talk about a smooth cat named D.B. Cooper. How'd you pick that? I dig anyone who drinks on the job and makes off with a bunch of cash. <laughs> well, I mean, we don't know that he got away, right? That's the whole thing of it. But everyone's certain that he was drinking on the job. No, that's true. That's true. All right. So since we're doing a little DB Cooper, John, why don't you hit us with a gofopedia on it and give everyone a little background to Mr. DB Cooper, which has to be his name because that's what they say. That's what they say. Yeah, right. exactly. And our thanks, citizensleuths.com for a lot of tonight's info. Great resource for all things DB Cooper. One afternoon, a day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a guy calling himself Dan Cooper, the media mistakenly called him D.B. Cooper, boarded Northwest (laughs) Airlines flight number 305 in Portland bound for Seattle. He was wearing a dark suit and a black tie and was described as a business executive type. While in the air, he opened his briefcase showing a bomb to the flight attendant and hijacked the plane. Plane landed. Back in the good old days when you could just take a bomb on a plane. Thanks a lot, Obama. <laughs> <laughs> the plane landed in Seattle where he demanded 200 k in cash, four parachutes, and food for the crew before releasing all the passengers. Also back in the day when hijackers were polite. Yeah. We need you to eat. <laughs> with only three pilots and one attendant left on board, they took off from Seattle with the marked bills, heading south while it was dark and lightly raining. In the 45 minutes after takeoff, Cooper sent the flight attendant to the cockpit while donning the parachute, 
tied the bag full of money uh, to himself, lowered the rear stairs, and somewhere north of Portland, he jumped into the night. <laughs> when the plane landed with the stairs down, they found the two remaining parachutes, and on the seat Cooper was sitting in, a black The military was called in days after the hijacking and approximately 1,000 troops searched the suspected jump zone on foot and in helicopters. The Boeing 727 used in the hijacking was flown out over the ocean and stairs were lowered and weights dropped in an attempt to determine when Cooper jumped. The SR-71 super secret spy plane was even sent in to photograph the entire flight path. But no sign of D.B. Cooper was ever discovered. The mystery remains unsolved to this day. Dun, dun, dun. Don't play that. See, but I got it. <laughs> oh, and yours was much better. What, what, what a fun yeah. story. Like, who hasn't, like, listened to this? And it's one of those things where you're kind of rooting for the bad guy. Yeah, well, because uh, he's sharp-dressed. He's nice. He's drinking bourbon. What's not not to like? <laughs> it's the only unsolved hijacking in the history of U.S. aviation. That speaks volumes for the guy. And I like that uh, he was kicked back and said, you know what? Give me a bourbon and soda. So John and I were prepared for this. And if you look back on it, some people say he was drinking a bourbon and soda like Coke. So John is drinking a bourbon and Coke. And I'm drinking a bourbon and 7-Up because some people say he was drinking a bourbon and 7-Up. So Regardless, our bases we're, are covered. We're covering all our bases. And Mike, and that's the only reason we're Mike, we told him not to drink uh, because we don't know how we're going to be by the end of the show. <laughs> so well, the problem is like I, I'm just drinking a Pepsi because that's what actor DB Sweeney would have drank, and that's what Conspiracy <laughs> Bot told me we were talking about today. So, oh, I'm, so I'm like ill prepared. I, I had all my harsh realm trivia queued up and ready to go. You watched Fire in the Sky. I was gonna say you're tra- you're tying yeah. back to our Travis Walton episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna do my best to keep up with DB Cooper here. This this polite terrorist. <laughs> <laughs> I say good day, madam. <laughs> yes. All right. So let's get into the history. Let's start with the hijacking. So it's on the eve of Thanksgiving, November 24th, 1971. November 24th happens to be my birthday, gentlemen. And the Whoa. 70s is the decade I was born in. I think it was just an early birthday present. Yeah, something awful happened in the early 70s and in the late 70s. <laughs> <laughs> so as we said, a man carrying a black briefcase approached the flight counter of Northwest Orient Airlines on Portland International Airport. That's racist. <laughs> he identified himself as Dan Cooper, not DB, and purchased a one-way ticket on Flight 305, a 30-minute trip to Seattle with cash. A question, was the show Hanging with Mr. Cooper actually about this hijacking? It's all, it's it's like the subtle nod to it. You okay, had to really pay it. attention. The, the original title was Hanging Off the Rear Steps of an Airplane <laughs> with Mr. Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> so Cooper boarded the aircraft, a Boeing 727-100, and took seat 18E, maybe, in the rear of the passenger cabin. The reason Brent says maybe here, because even if you look on Wikipedia, which this actually is not from uh, <laughs> this time. Um, but You're welcome. <laughs> if you look even on Wikipedia, it says 18E or maybe 18C or maybe 17F. Like they have like three different. Which and, seems and really how do you weird. not know? Like, yeah. is the, didn't they go pull the ticket stub that day? Like, hey. Hey, what 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 did what did his signature look like? And you know this is the seventies because they say he lit a cigarette and ordered that bourbon and soda and relaxed. This cat seemed like he knew what he was doing, and everything. Everyone that they've talked to about this said at no point did he seemed razzled, flustered, anything. He was just like, "Hey, hey, toots." I got something for you here. <laughs> How is it they can remember? They said he had eight cigarettes. They can remember the exact number of cigarettes he had, 
But they can't actually, actually, I just thought of it. They counted the cigarette butts, didn't they? Yeah, you probably. Don't throw them out those windows. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. So eyewitnesses on board recalled a man in his mid 40s, between five foot 10 and six foot tall. They said he was like 170, 180 pounds, and he wore a black, lightweight raincoat, loafers, and a dark suit, and a neatly pressed white collared shirt, a black necktie, and a mother of pearl tie pin. And I, I say that because. There is a lot of people that saw him and they were all spot on. Like they spent a lot of time, even the flight attendants, a lot of time with this guy. And they are pretty sure that everything they said, as far as the description is is spot on. Feels like an action movie about a Mormon missionary almost at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Elder Cooper and the the flight of destiny. Well, we we don't know if he took his jacket off. So we don't know if it was a short sleeve pressed white shirt uh, or a long sleeve. It was long sleeve. True. It's more men in blackish. Did they decide if he actually jumped out over the temple because he was late for his own wedding? Like, I finally got the money. I can afford it. It's fucking expensive for Mormons. To get married in the temple. Or maybe they couldn't find him because he was a man in black. You gotta understand. <laughs> you gotta understand. Something. I was just giving conspiracy about another chance. Of course. All of my Mormon knowledge comes from the movie Orgasmo. <laughs> so you gotta take it with a grin. <laughs> so shortly after takeoff, and again, this is a 30 minute flight, Cooper handed a note to the flight attendant and her name was Florence Schaffner and Florence, assuming the note contained a dude's, Hey, here's my number. Call me. She just drops it in her purse and keeps on going. I'll call him later. Yeah. Cooper leans to her and says, miss, you better look at that note. I, got, I have a bomb. <laughs> oh, is that what you're referring to that thing in your pants now? <laughs> I was going to say, she just thought that was more of the same, uh, you know. Here we go. <laughs> no, 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 miss, an actual bomb. No, I get it. You have a large penis. No, I'm going to blow up the plane. <laughs> but I do have a big dick. I swear. <laughs> I do. Never mind. Yeah. <laughs> Can I have another bourbon? <laughs> so the note was printed in all capital letters. It's neat. And its exact wording is unknown. Because Cooper later reclaimed it, but Schaffner recalled that it indicated he had a bomb in his briefcase and directed her to sit beside him. And she did as requested, and then quietly she says, hey, let me see that bomb, motherfucker. <laughs> and Cooper cracks his brief open long enough to show her what looked like there was some red sticks and wiring in there. It looked to be a bomb. Until this point, it sounded exactly like the opening to a 70s porno about a plane hijacking. <laughs> There's a Until hole in the, the bottom of the briefcase. I'll real. show you the bomb. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Reach in here and diffuse it. It was such. A, it, it was actually such a fake bomb. You open it up. The, the, the timer was one of those big old brass alarm clocks. Yep. The, 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 yeah. Exactly. <laughs> So he closed it. He, he dictated the demands. 200000 in, in negotiable American currency. He wanted $20 bills only. They, 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 that's in quotes, negotiable American currency. And people make a big deal out of that because when they're trying to figure out who D.B. Cooper might have been, there's all, you know there's supp- supposition that he might not have been from this country because an American wouldn't call it American currency, probably. They would just right. say, give me money. Uh, but if they're from another country, they might say, now that is complete guesswork, but that is a, that's why it's noted. We want the money, Shafna. <laughs> we want the money, Lebowski. So, and up to this point, he's been exceedingly polite, so he could be Canadian. That is true. Close to the border. <laughs> I'm really sorry that I have to do this. Sorry. Sorry. My bad. Sorry. <laughs> so then he wants Worrying. four. <laughs> but don't worry. If anyone gets hurt, we've got free health care up there. Yeah. <laughs> then he wants four parachutes, two primary and two reserve, and a fuel truck standing in Seattle to refuel the plane upon arrival. 
So the stewardess conveyed Cooper's instructions to the pilots in the cockpit, and when she returned, he was wearing dark sunglasses. This dude just gets cooler and more badass. Like, he sounds like some, like, 1970s, I guess, noir guy. He's he's drinking his bourbon, he throws his shades on, he's like, explosion time. (laughs) He said, uh, he actually wears his sunglasses at night so he can. So So he he can. can. It makes sense. (laughs) Makes sense. Just stop. So the aircraft circled Puget Sound for approximately two hours to allow Seattle police and the FBI long enough to get his demands, which unfortunately wasn't like airheads where he wanted a football helmet full of cottage cheese and naked pictures of B. Arthur. (laughs) He just wanted money and refueling. Friend of the show, Bob Fesco, would like naked pictures of B. Arthur. He swears that she's a hot woman. Well, well, not anymore. You know, (laughs) maybe since death, but, you know, maybe. So, and they also, they mobilized Literally not emergency, hot, cold. Well, room temperature. <laughs> emergency personnel. So then, Schaffner recalled that Cooper appeared familiar with the local terrain. And this is interesting. He, like, looks out the window and he's like, looks like Tacoma. Looks like Tacoma down there as the aircraft flew above it. And he also correctly mentioned that McCord Air Force Base was only a 20-minute drive probably at that time, (laughs) probably takes a little bit longer now, from Seattle Tacoma Airport, and Shafter described him as calm, polite, well-spoken, and not at all consistent with the stereotypes, uh, the enraged, hardened criminals, or take-me-to-Cuba political types that were popular with air piracy at the time. I'm going to say that again, air piracy. He was an air pirate. That's just badass. Yeah, see, a right white there. guy does it, and it's air piracy. Brown people do it. It's terrorism. I see how this works. <laughs> Can we start referring to you as our resident brown person? Because then we could just have you. But say there you go. Stuff. Yeah, <laughs> our resident brown <laughs> person, Mike Gonzalez. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna have him say things so they don't sound racist. <laughs> <laughs> that's how you get away with it our man in the street <laughs> so yeah. tina mucklow another flight attendant agreed he wasn't nervous and she told investor he seemed rather nice he was never cruel or nasty he was even thoughtful you'll be saying wow every time you use this towel <laughs> he ordered a second bourbon paid his tab attempted to tip Schaffner with the change and offered to request meals for the flight crew when they got to Seattle. I'm thinking, like you said, this cat's Canadian. <laughs> well, and maybe that's why they call it a pirate rather than uh, a terrorist. Terrorists don't request flight meals. That's all I'm saying. So FBI agents assembled the ransom money from several Seattle banks, which is 10,000 unmarked $20 bills. But because he asked for them in $20 yeah, bills, they made microfilm photograph of each of them so that they had the serial number. How did they have time when he only had a half crazy, hour? right? Like, that's a lot of pictures. Well, they, they circled for two hours. They circled Puget Sound for two hours while they were getting everything ready. Still a it, lot. It's of, especially with maybe it's rolling and they're just rolling them in front of it. And then they're, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Sucks to be an intern that day. That's all I know. <laughs> The Cooper rejected the military issue parachutes offered by McCord Air Force Base, demanding instead civilian parachutes with manually operated ripcords. And Seattle police obtained them from a local skydiving school. He kind of thought that I don't know what would make one safer than the other. He thought that they might have um, booby trapped the first set. Yeah. But they could have done that to the second set. So I have no idea where that thought process comes from. And that falls well, in. Into- actually, I say that that's actually supposition on what he thought because no one's actually interviewed him to say that. Well, and we'll talk about the air, the, the parachutes later. And there's, there is thought process for each reason of why he might have chose one or the right, other. Right, right, right. So he lets the passengers go. At 524, Cooper is informed that his demands have been met. And by 540, 539, the aircraft lands in Seattle Tacoma Airport and the delivery's completed. Cooper permits all the passengers 
Schaffner and the senior flight attendants to leave the plane. So like you said, it's just him and like the three uh, air- airline personnel during a feeling Cooper outlined his flight plan to the cockpit crew southeast course towards Mexico City at a minimum airspeed possible without stalling the aircraft. You boys like Mexico! (laughs) Approximately 100 knots, uh, 190 kilometers, or 120 miles per hour at a maximum of a 10,000 feet altitude. So as low and as slow as you low and slow to mexico <laughs> side note on my little my little outburst there yeah obviously a reference to super troopers of course they just finished super troopers too yeah they're edit- I, I saw them they're editing and they're in the big swing yeah i can't wait out. so he further specified that the landing gear remained deployed into takeoff landing position wings flaps be lowered 15 degrees and the cabin remain unpressurized which we now know why he wanted to open the fucking door Finally, Cooper directed them that the plane take off with the rear exit door open and its staircase extended. Northwest Home Office objected on the grounds it was unsafe to take off with the staircase deployed. So Cooper countered with, fuck it, it is fine, but whatever, I'll lower it myself in the air. Another another point towards him perhaps being Canadian. That's very polite. Most hijackers don't go, uh, you know what, I disagree, but hey. I'll go with your side of things and take care of it myself later. (laughs) So he's back in the air at approximately 7.40 p.m. And pilot Scott and the flight attendant Macklow and co-pilot Ratzak, I think is how you say it. Ratazak. Ratazak. And flight engineer H.E. Anderson aboard. They take Cooper. Cooper tells Macklow, go in the cockpit, join them, close the door, leave me alone. Nothing to see here. Yeah. So she complied, and then she observed Cooper tying something around his waist, and at approximately 8 p.m., a warning light flashed in the cockpit that the aft stairs, the rear stairs, had been activated. So he's opened the door, and the, the, the stairs are going down. And at that very moment, Lloyd Bridges was sitting somewhere saying, I picked the wrong day to quit sniffing glue. <laughs> <laughs> so the crew offered assistance through the intercom system, saying, hey, dude, the fucking door is opening up. You need help? But he refused. Huh? I'm good. And they noticed a change in air pressure then that he'd open the fucking door and shit's going down. If I open the studio door, will it bring this shit show to a halt? Only he wishes, John. Yeah, exactly. So at approximately 8.13, the aircraft's tail section sustained a sudden upward movement, significant enough to require trimming to bring the plane back to level, meaning someone jumped out. <laughs> like there was a bunch of weight. Uh, they said about the weight of a 180 pound man with $200,000 strapped to him. Who had taken his tie off. <laughs> Give or take a few ounces. So they land at Reno Air Force Base. The aft stairs are still deployed. FBI agents, state troopers, sheriff's deputies, and the Reno police surround the jet as they're not yet determined whether he actually jumped or not. And we actually have our first indication he might not have been Canadian. It's very impolite to not close the door behind you. That's true. And (laughs) they find out he's no longer born because they searched the plane with an armed people. He's gone. So now what the fuck happened to him? Well, time to start an investigation. An investigation that I will add ended in 2016 when they said, fuck it. We can't find him. That's a hell of 40-something years. And I think the official release was our resources could be better spent elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo, yeah. Mr. Cooper. Now, now that we have expended $1.3 billion trying to recover this $200,000. <laughs> and 50 years of the government's hard work and time. <laughs> yeah. But they're still entertaining leads. So it's not completely sealed. It's just put to the back of the line. Well, just know that, Brent, that if you ever go commit a heinous crime, 
that if after 50 years they haven't figured it out, they might give up on it. Which is funny. Air piracy only had a only had a statute of limitations of five years. So at the end of those five years, they actually changed it to like this Hobbs Air Act, which had no uh, no statute of limitations so they could keep looking for them. But just by the fact that they called it air piracy, don't you think that they're like, oh, yeah, that'll happen. Uh, yeah. Hey, just in case there's an air pirate that comes along and wants to take these planes over. Yeah, we'll put a we'll, five years, Earl. Yeah, five years. When you know how everyone dresses up for Pirates of the Caribbean as their favorite pirate, I think we all go as DB Cooper. Who <laughs> 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 are you dressed as? My favorite pirate, DB Cooper. Call me Dan. <laughs> I'm going to dress up as my favorite pirate from Captain Phillips. I think you need to do some serious binging and purging to get down to that 112 uh, pound frame of <laughs> that. Uh, I, I lose like 12 pounds when I take my belt off. Does that count? <laughs> All right, investigation. So aboard the airliner, they recover 66 unidentified latent fingerprints. Cooper is a latent uh, fingerprint? I think it's just a fingerprint. That's a fancy way of saying fingerprint. All right, got it. <laughs> Cooper's, now this is maybe, maybe not. Cooper's black necktie and mother of pearl tie clip and two of the four parachutes, one of which had been opened and two shroud lines had been cut because they figured that's what he she Used saw him to tie tying. around the money, right? Now I say maybe his black clip on tie because they're not a hundred percent sure it was his, but it was a black tie. It was a clip on, which comes in later with one of my theories on this, which and also means that he could be Canadian because we all know that Canadians can't actually tie ties, ties, shoes. I mean, they call it the Velcro Nation for a reason. So right. yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> Eyewitnesses in Portland, Seattle, and Reno. And all of those personally interacted with Cooper were interviewed, and a series of composite sketches were developed. And it's interesting, they interviewed all these people separate, and the composite sketches were spot on the same. It's one of the few times where, like, they were like, everyone kind of had the same story. Wait, we don't need Jeff Mudgett to show us how yeah. the picture might look like something else? <laughs> Good old Jeff Mudgett. I hear him and David Weiss are getting a uh, flat together somewhere. They're, they're going to be roommates. They mud together. They enjoy a good mudding. Is that like that scene in Ghost where one of them's just behind the other? Like, oh, forming? my love, my darling. Uh, no, my guy apologized. Mudding is where you go sit in a big vat of mud with like cucumbers on your oh, eyes. Oh, It's good for your exfoliation. I, I, don't know, I don't really even know what that means, but yeah, we'll go for it. So like I said, they made these sketches and a precise search of the air was difficult to find because... They don't know when he jumped, at what altitude, anything, because there was no set aviation plan. They said, take me to Mexico. So the pilot's like, all right, I'll go this way. Now, while it is amazing that he hasn't been found to this day, don't you also get the feeling that even back then, investigations were kind of like uh, playing a game of Mad Libs? All right, give me a noun. Uh, what, you say that every time the, the police are involved. At what date do, does that change? Three years ago. I just wondered. <laughs> the year 2008. Those Keystone fuck-ups. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we we went out into the forest and we looked. Guess he got away. Right. So I guess the big thing that they, when they're trying to figure out where he might have jumped at, an important variable was the length of time he remained in free fall before, before pulling his ripcord. If he did succeed in opening the parachute at all, they don't know. You know, 200 mile an hour wind, he's in loafers, <laughs> you know, so and, and, a, and a business suit. And so, you can't even get a straight answer from, you know, quote unquote experts on on um, 
A lot of people say if you jump out of that, he's dead. And, and a lot I of s- other people saying if you've jumped more than twice in your life, no problem. So I was listening to the FBI, the, the head of the FBI investigation on him. He said there is no way you can survive jumping out of that plane. Then the same documentary went to a flight school and they do the DB Cooper jump where they have a 727 and they do <laughs> the exact fucking jump he did. And that guy's like, uh, that's not true. Let's go. <laughs> like, and they do it. Here's they, my grandmother, Edna. She did it last week. I I shit you not now, of course, at the time when D.B. Cooper did it, it was overcast and it might may or may not have been raining, depending on where he went. But to say that that was an impossible jump is horse shit. And it's such horse shit. You can recreate the jump yourself after you've done a few jumps. And people think that, that A, he had no experience. No, he was a paratrooper from the military. Who knows? You know, but it's definitely a survivable jump. If you've planned it out this well, you have to think, even if you weren't a uh, experienced uh, paratrooper, that you at the very least would have taken a few practice jumps just to make sure you knew how to do it. Right. Right. John, have you ever jumped out of an airplane? No, I never have. I've never I've never gone skydiving. I'll pay for you to do the DB Cooper jump as your first time. <laughs> you know, I kind of like his way of thinking, John. I'm with him on this one. I, I feel like I feel like he's he's trying to he's implying something there. <laughs> He'll stand with a bucket on the bottom. I got you. <laughs> Come on down. So this reports place Cooper's landing zone within the area of the southernmost outreach of Mount St. Helens, a few miles southeast of Ariel, Washington, near Lake Merwin. But no trace of Cooper nor any of the equipment presumed to have left the aircraft with him was found at all during the initial search. The FBI also coordinated with aerial search and thorough ground search. Ultimately, the search operation, arguably the most extensive and expensive in U.S. history, uncovered no significant material evidence relating to the hijacking. They used the fucking SR-71 Blackbird with the most sophisticated camera system on Earth and found nothing. It's like that thing in Predator, we hit nothing. (laughs) (laughs) They they just got nothing. They came up empty. I wonder why, if they know that he dove out in Washington, like, why did the plane have to go all the way to Reno? And, like, that's, all, that's they, like quite a I, trip to I figure out. I think what out. they said is they think he did, but when they found nothing there, they're like, well, maybe maybe something else happened. So they, they recre- retrace as much of it as they could. I guess they don't, they don't know for sure when he jumped. It was open for a long time. And once she was in the back, there was there – was lo- I mean – I'm not going to do the math, but the amount of the amount of time, <laughs> the amount of mile mile, the amount of miles that you could cover in 10 to 15 minutes going that fast. And also the amount of time that he p- waited to pull his ripcord while moving that fast covers a vast area of, uh, you know, that he would have settled down. And in. they said it might have been raining. I mean, it, those stairs were probably slick. <laughs> what if as soon as he lowered it and they shut the door, he slips, falls, hit his head and just goes down. <laughs> he's done yeah uh it's it's crazy like you said a minute here and a minute there even though they're going really slow changes everything drastically and the height altitude they they didn't keep an uh a steady altitude they kept up and down this is why you need altimeters how many times (laughs) do you need to say it on this podcast (laughs) come full circle (laughs) So then we got a portion of Brian Ingram's 1980 discovery. So in February 1980, nine years after the incident, eight-year-old Brian Ingram vacationed with his family on the Columbia River at a beachfront known as Tina Bar, uncovered three packets of the ransom cash as he raked the Sandy River Bank to build a campfire. 
That's fucking crazy. The bills were significantly disintegrated. You could look them up, and it's just like the middles of them left. I just enjoy the fact that that Brian's parents were like, hey, we've got an eight-year-old. Go get us the shit for a campfire. <laughs> but this money was still bundled in rubber bands, and FBI technicians confirmed that the money was indeed portion of the ransom. So there's two packets. Yeah, because the, uh, the serial numbers were still visible. Exactly. Two packets of $120 bills each and a third packet of 90 all arranged in the same order, when which was given to Cooper. To date, none of the other 9,710 remaining bills have turned up anywhere in the world. Their serial numbers remain available online, public search. You can look it up. This is the only time anything has ever come up. And they searched that motherfucking area, that Tina bar, like crazy to find the rest of the money because they thought maybe it followed from the river down into there. Nothing. Like he was like, whoops, as he maybe was was in the air or something. Who knows? Now my my conspiracy theory is he he lands in the middle of the Washington forest because we have we have two packets with $120 bills. One of them only has 90. Mm-hmm. So he lands in the middle of a Sasquatch encampment. <laughs> and he's like, hey, who wants to make a quick 20 bucks to who get wants, me out of the woods who right wants now? To make $20 the hard way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and since Sasquatch don't really understand our currency, this is actually enough money to buy an entire state. It's like, fuck <laughs> exactly. you. It's like in uh, Euro Trip where he gives him, he tips him a nickel, a nickel, a fucking nickel, and he slaps his boss. Fuck you. I buy my own hotel. <laughs> in their Eastern Bloc countries. So the overarching debate on this whole thing is did he die or did he land and get away scot free, one might say? So it's a huge public debate. Like I said, experienced skydivers say he, he would have died at first if he had to jumped. Other experienced skydivers say, fucking, if he was expert, no problem at all. One experienced parachutist believed that no one, that, that anyone who had six or seven jumps, as John attested to earlier, could accomplish the jump, no problem. The cold weather may not have killed him in the woods if he landed. It was cold, but it wasn't fucking terrible. I actually said one to two jumps, but I was affording for the fact that he was Canadian, <laughs> and they're better skydivers. There you go. No <laughs> body or parachute has ever been found. So the FBI says you couldn't have survived it. Great. Where's he hanging from a tree dead? Where did that happen? Where's well, it at? That's where Mike steps in. The, the Sasquatches took his body. That's true. Yeah. So if he was to survive, they say he has to have been an experienced skydiver. So there's arguments for and arguments against that he might've been an experienced skydiver. So he requested front and back parachutes. That sounds like a novice. You don't know what you're doing. He turned down instructions, how to use the parachutes kind of sounds experienced. He picked the non steerable military parachute novice. Why would you do that? But the military chute could be better to withstand the exit speed of that plane which might make him experienced. Then he put the sh- parachute on like he knew what he was doing, experienced. And he took the reserve chute that was so enclosed and non-functional. Well, that sounds like a novice. Unless he was wanting that because he knew he was going on the ground and maybe he was going to open that up and use it for coverage and camp, you know, why he's... Easy way to use that chute to cover yourself when it's cold outside. It turns out he can only sleep well if he's swaddled like a <laughs> newborn, and he was going to swaddle himself in the unopened chute. 
So then we got the Palmer Report. Let's stem from the FBI briefing in Portland State University, where geologist Dr. Leonard Palmer was asked to analyze a sandbar where the money was found, the, the money found in 1980. And in between 1971, the hijacking, and in 1980 when the money was found, the Columbia River was dredged and sand was deposited at Tina Bar in 1974. So Palmer's report determined that the money was on a layer of top sand laid down by the dredging. This implied that the money was somewhere else upstream for years before coming to rest on Tina Bar. So the counterpoint was that the delicate rubber bands that were still intact on the bundles were found. The bands pointed to an earlier time frame for the money coming to rest. People were saying that if it was dredged, those very delicate rubber bands yeah. would have snapped. I said that in a weird way. Yeah. Uh, they're saying this was dredged. Well, if it was dredged, it was going to be knocked the fuck out. I can't imagine that they would have stayed together because it doesn't take long for a rubber band to go. You put it outside and it becomes brittle as fuck. But, but there's a million eventualities there. What if it was already caked in mud and mud was acting as a as a barrier around it? So it just went as one big, true. big lump of, of mud, essentially, when it got dredged. That's true. So when was the re where was the real flight path? So the flight path on the that was like the first time, folks, in the history of doing this show that he looked at me and didn't give me a you're an idiot look. Well, you're learning, John. You're learning. I still think you're an idiot. Thanks, Seabot. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> so where was the real flight path? Well, the flight path map in the FBI archives has no information on who drew the flight path or where it was created. Gotta love fucking record keeping. Uh, was I wrong? <laughs> Keystone cops. <laughs> the flight path as drawn is thought to be from a detailed analysis of radar data and flight recorder discussed in the FBI transcripts. But the FBI path does not fly over Tina Bar or the Washougal area at all. The money found on Tina Bar forces the flight path debate because it would be much easier to explain the money found if Cooper flew over the Tina Bar and jumped or... Flight 305 flew over the Rushugal River, and Cooper's ransom money ended up washing downstream. So a lot of people say that motherfucker was traipsing through the area and lost it out of his pocket or something, not his pocket, but his pouch. And if that sounds confusing, it's because it is. You, If you look it up online, that there's the supposed flight path, and there's like 30 other supposed flight paths. They they truly weren't exactly sure of the flight path. This is a time pre-GPS where it's not being recorded at all times. Right. So then you got to look at Cooper and say, well, was he from the area? He's sitting in the airplane and he recognized Tacoma from the air. Sounds like he's local. But if he was a local, he'd be an idiot to hijack an airplane where he could be recognized. So that sounds like he's not local. But he made very unusual requests for negotiable American currency, as John alluded to. So unlike most Americans, it sounds like he's from outside of the country. <sighs> That's the story in a nutshell. And they don't know anything else, pretty much. I don't but, know. What do you what do you what are you thinking, Mike? I I don't know. I'm wondering there's there's so many different things that could happen. Like, you know, did his chute fail to open? Maybe he just like was like a lawn dart straight <laughs> into did. the soft <laughs> riverbed and that's where the money came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's got a wily e. coyote shaped little like imprint of DB <laughs> Cooper out there somewhere. Bring uh, you the Acme parachute. <laughs> there you go, yeah. He uh, he pulled the ripcord and that anvil floated out, so he had to do that double take to the camera and wave bye bye and you know, and big puff of smoke. And while we don't know for sure what happened that day, we there has been some new evidence since then. And when we come back, we are going to talk about that evidence and how it relates to the clip on tie we've talked so much about. Next on Hysteria Fifty One. <laughs> Thank you. 
David. Me amo Brent. Bonjour, uh, Brent. Je m'appelle David. You didn't do Spanish. I thought if we were going to do this together, we'd do the same language. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that's uh, that's on brand for us. I, that, I I just thought romance languages was yeah. the key. Everything I say is romantic, and that is thanks to Rosetta Stone. <laughs> you guys, we, we've been touting these things forever. We love Rosetta Stone, and we actually are users. David, you've really been using it even for longer than I. What's your experience been like? Oh, it's been great. The thing is, uh, you really get to learn how to speak and think in that language with it. So it's very high on pronunciation too. So <laughs> you can, you know, learn how to speak. And you know, our show is all about proper pronunciation. <laughs> in that pronunciation. Yeah, that's right. But it's, it, they design it for long-term retention, you know, it, and yeah. uh, if you don't get the pronunciation right, you, you say it until you do. And then, you know, that, that just seeps into your head. Well, and that's why, you know, this has been trusted by experts for 30 years and, there's over 25 different languages that you can learn and people, millions and millions of users use it because like you said, it does seep in and you're using it with, you know, you get speech recognition and mm-hmm. it, it hears you. You get to use like the built-in true accent features that gives you this pronunciation, which is super convenient and you can do it at your own time. And I don't know if you can know this, but I'm all about value and you get a one-time purchase, 25 languages. If I learned all 25 languages, I'd be so confused. Or really cool. <laughs> I have to go in and out. But you'd be real marketable. But literally, though, this is something that we use, and we have both of us have given the seal of approval because we wanted to do this long term, and uh, it's something that uh, it works, you know. And we don't yeah. we don't do long term um, stuff like this, and this is this is the one that we've chosen, and we love it. So, all you guys got to do don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now, as we've told you a thousand times, and it's always now, right now. Get now. started. For Larry, limited time, his Air 51 listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. How much? 50%. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your unnatural life. Wow. Redeem, redeem, redeem. How do they do it? Rashate, you're oh. 50% off. <laughs> Rashate. <laughs> redeem it. 50% off rosettastone.com slash today. Do it today. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, it's that there's always a catch. So when Brent and I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, we thought, man, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Brent is trying to plan right now and says that it works like a charm from Chicago to Nashville as he makes his big old move. Mint Mobile is working for him. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network, And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. So ditch the overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash hysteria. That's mintmobile, M-I-N-T-M-O-B-I-L-E dot com slash 
Hysteria, H-Y-S-T-E-R-I-A. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash hysteria. $45 upfront payment required. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Welcome back, kids. Hopefully you had time to brush up on your FBI skills because I think they they need your help is what we're learning from going through a lot of these uh, cases. <laughs> or had time to hit the fast forward button, whatever you did. One or the other. We're trying to say if you if you took 10 minutes to read at their Wikipedia page, you're about on par with the FBI agents from the 70s. So <laughs> well, the head of this podcast. <laughs> we'll give you special <laughs> agent denunciation. Yeah, there you go. All right. So we're back. We were just talking about, you know, the whole case is done. Now let's break down some of the finer details. And one of my favorites is the the curious case of the clip-on tie. And a lot of people go, "Why this guy was so smooth, and then he's got a fucking clip-on tie. Some people think he was just a kind of douchey. Some people think that was for a reason. So in the entire Cooper case, the only two real pieces of useful physical evidence currently available is that black tie and the ransom money found in Tina Barr. So while the money points to what it could have happened after Cooper jumped, it's the only the it's only the tie that points to where he came from in his life that he led beforehand. So of all the possible things for him to leave on the plane, the tie was incredibly fortunate when for you this say investigation. Points, when you say points to his life beforehand, you're obviously going with Michael's assumption that he was was it the Church of Latter-day Saints? No. <laughs> He's a Mormon. A Mormon. Missionary. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing, right? So a tie is one of the only articles of clothing that isn't washed on a regular basis, and that's a good thing. It picks up dirt and grime just like any other piece of clothing, but that accumulation never truly gets reset, some might say, in the washing machine. Which I, I always thought was gross. Like, I, I wore ties for years of my jobs, and... It's like, yeah, this thing doesn't get washed. I mean, you rub up against stuff all day and it's right. just, you put it back on, you know, the next week or whatever. Right. And each of those particles that you're rubbing against on and getting on and putting on week, week after week comes from something or somewhere and they can tell a story. And the proper instruments like electron microscope, which are available now, you can really dig in and tell that fucking story. They certainly do tell a story. Hey, Earl, um. Uh, you just got home. I know you said you worked late. Why is there glitter all over your tie? Ah, ah, <laughs> I was helping out of the child school. The child school. We don't have any children. Fuck you, Dave. And why is, um, he, why is he talking to Dave? I don't know. <laughs> why is Dave there? Um, and it smells like cotton candy. <laughs> I had sex with a clown. Damn it! I, why couldn't you with a you stripper? Went to the strip club. I had sex with a clown. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even I'm not even upset. I'm impressed. <laughs> so this this black tie was found in the cushion of seat 18E, the seat that Cooper was sitting in Maybe. allegedly. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. This fact alone should link the tie to Cooper, but it has been in the general position of the FBI that they don't know if this is Cooper's tie or not, which you got to treat it like that. Oh, lots of people were wearing black clip-on ties at the time. <laughs> but most investigators find that it's reasonable to assume that it belonged to him. So, of course. So later, like since then, so like since in, in, then, yeah. in the 2000s. Well, we're talking about the, the, the electron microscope. We used an electron microscope yeah. to take a look. And the, the, the particulate matter identified in the tie represent... The only new physical evidence to come along in the case since the money that was found in 1980. So while the age of the case makes it 
older and a colder, the tools of the investigation have become overwhelmingly, as we stated, more sensitive and sophisticated. So all this new technology can be used to investigate this now, and this is the only fucking piece we have. And they did. And they found some interesting particulates. They found pieces of titanium. Yep. Um, uh, strontium, strontium. Sulfide. That's a fun one. Sulfide. And cerium. Now, why are those important, John? Well, cerium comes from Syria. And so we mentioned before that he might have been a terrorist. <laughs> and strontium sulfide comes Ooh. from the sovereign nation of strontium. So, <laughs> And so he's a terrorist from either strontium or strontia and or, and or Syria. Now, the... <laughs> The real, the real reason why those are so telling is there was literally in 1971 only one place that those three elements were being used, and that was Boeing, the company that manufactures aircraft. They were used there all the time, so you can look at that and say whoever that tie belonged to had to have been in the Boeing plant. I'd buy that for a dollar. So that's a telling fucking tale. If if this gentleman, it brings up all new avenues. He knew about planes. Well, did he have a background in it? And did he have a background because he was a pilot? Or did the flight crew collude with him and it was an inside job? Right. And assuming that that, that supposition is true, that it only could have come from Boeing. Mm-hmm. Um, other people have said that there were a handful of plants it could have come from. And, you know, but the, the, but, the, but, uh, uh, the believed one is that it's probably, from, probably from Boeing. Yeah. Um, also the fact that it's on his tie means that he was more of an executive there because if he was a plant worker, he wouldn't have worn his tie onto the, and here's another thing that I found really interesting with that. The executives, a lot of times wore clip on ties because when they're around machinery, if it got caught, it had to come off so they couldn't get sucked into machinery like that. So, that makes sense for I wear a fucking clip on tie out of safety. Or he's Canadian. <laughs> so that really narrows this field down. So you'd think, well, he jumps out. You've got a picture of this guy. 1971 Boeing employees, if he worked there, one of them should be able to look at this cat and go, I know that guy. And, you know, we're not going to get into all of the potential suspects uh, every Every internet sleuth out there has a different potential suspect. There was uh, there was one guy who's already been debunked who did a similar um, hijacking a few years later and spent the next like forty years in prison for it. And, yeah, it, but the, in reality, uh, it was proven that it was more of like a copycat. He actually said to a buddy at a bar, "I could do it better than that." DB Cooper. Many, can. many, many people have on their deathbed confessed to being db cooper yeah um yeah. and and even more have said their parents I, were why is that a, why is that a thing why do so many people turn their parents in for being renowned well and, <laughs> except criminals for, except for when you go to the case of the zodiac killer with the one dude in uh turns in his stepfather and they're like yeah maybe <laughs> we don't know if he's the zodiac killer but it's weird that there's a bloody knife yeah <laughs> <laughs> we don't know what he did but uh, mike how many bloody knives do you have around you right now Seven. Uh, right now, I mean, my guess. you know, <laughs> dishwasher's running right now, oh, so that's all I'm going to do. Fuck, Mike, you ruin everything. You're going to have to find a new brown friend, John. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, and, and during the, during this presidency, they're going to be hard to find. That's true. That's true. <laughs> we're we're of becoming Canada. a, speaking of rare earth commodities. <laughs> 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 
All right. So some conclusions so there, we're, we're going to try to come There's some to. conclusions that can be drawn based on what is known. Go ahead, John. So first, the FBI flight path map that we talked about, it seems to pass the smell test. Agents working on the flight path in 1971 had the radar and flight path data, which is lost today. The SAGE radar, that's an acronym that I don't know what it means, but we're just <laughs> going to skip over that. The SAGE radar <laughs> used to track Cooper's plane was relied on to a, a was relied upon to identify, locate, and track incoming Russian bombers and threats to the United States. So there's no reason to assume that they would get it wrong. I mean, right. if, if they're going to get anything right, it's whether bombers are coming to get us. One uh, would hope. Yeah, you'd hope. Uh, analysis of various features. I mean, that was the middle of the Cold War. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, analysis of, was it the middle of the Cold War? Yeah, it was. Yes. Analysis of various features of this case rule out the theories that require a different flight path other than the one portrayed on the FBI map. So what they're what, so what we're saying here is yeah, it could have been this flight path, it could have been that flight path because of the money or because of this or because of that 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 based on everything we know that doesn't make a lot of sense and the FBI flight path probably makes more sense. Right. Lastly, the text descriptions in the FBI 302 link the flight path to various towns. This research finds that the flight path and jump zone are reasonable and should be a cornerstone in the analysis of this case. Meaning everything that's in front of you should probably be taken, right. you know, for face value. Taking all the evidence to bear, it, it makes sense. So where is he? Well, if he jumped out and they can't find him, it kind of leads to th- make you one think maybe he may actually fucking made it. Sasquatches. Yeah. So the money find yeah. at Tina Barr... <laughs> complicates things though the rubber band experiments allow less than a year for the money to become entombed in the sand like you said it had to have been impacted for it to stay and the money continues like to a molar <laughs> impacted the money continues to resist all natural explanations for how it arrived at tina bar like i said maybe he dropped the shit you know but the story behind the money may be as big as the cooper story itself there's no hard evidence that Cooper died in the jump. So it remains the primary debate. If Cooper walked out of the woods, there certainly would be easy for it to explain why the money fucking went there. He dropped it. Something happened. Whereas if he just jumped out, there's no fucking way it got there naturally. Probably. 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 The thing that's hard about this is you, it's hard to know what nature does. Right. Right. Like, right. what were the winds like? What did the river do? Well, you got to look at it. The earth is flat, as we all know. So <laughs> <laughs> there's only so much windswept things that can happen before the firmament. Uh, and that's the dome that covers us all as we so know. So when he jumped, how much higher was the dome? Uh, 14 feet. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. He was right next to the sun because not little do you know, he actually was the guy who, who changes the bulb, the bulb in, in the, the sun. sun. That's why he jumped out at night. Now, and if you're going to change the bulb in the sun, do you need a special key to get out of the dome? No, no. They leave it unlocked. Oh. Yeah. It's just, I mean, they, yeah, who cares? <laughs> like Eliza Lamb's water tank. Yes. They just leave it unlocked. <laughs> leave that unlocked. Uh, Elisa's fine. She's, you know, someone might want to go for a little swim. <laughs> That brings us to the tie. So the tie. We make fun of flat earthers and dead Asian women at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> it's range, man. <laughs> that actually makes me happy. But um, <laughs> so the tie reasonably belonged to Cooper, as we've said. Probably says the probability analysis was never done to estimate the likelihood of the black tie found on the plane belonging to him, and this probability analysis shows that it's a reasonable to assume that the tie was that of the hitchhiker. The, the hijacker. I'm sorry. I don't want to say. <laughs> I don't want to say hitchhacker or hijacker. The air air pirate. 
The air, air pirate. pirate. There you go. When you say the probability analysis, this comes back to that citizensleuths.com website we were talking about. Yeah. That is- Who's taken over for the FBI and done better than And done a did. better job. Yeah. It's, it's like some real, it's not just some, you know, some Google hard asses. Yeah. It, it's, it's some real professors and real people that have looked into this stuff. And, and, and they ran a probability analysis on the whole thing, all the pros and cons. And they say, yeah, it's a lot more likely that the tie belonged to him. Then it didn't, which obviously, anecdotally, you could have just said, too, because it was on his seat. Right. So, this is a crucial first step, since all the particles found in the tie tell a story, for that to be Cooper's story. There needs to be some critical review of the likelihood that the tie belonged to Cooper, and if it did, like we said, fucking go look into Boeing. Boeing. So, titanium metal was the rare, exotic, narrowing field of the possibility of D.B. Cooper. It was on him. The titanium particles on the tie, the most dramatic finding in this research. So most of the other metals could have been written off as contamination, uh, too common or anything like that. But additional findings that the titanium was not alloyed further the restrictions on where Cooper could have required these. Right. So it, it wasn't was ti- raw. It wasn't titanium alloy. It was, yeah. it was just hardcore titanium, which is only available in a couple places. And then you add in those other metals that were on there too, that you don't get from rubbing up on your local Pepsi machine. <laughs> and you add in the fact that he was likely an executive and it narrows down your list of suspects from like millions. It says Cooper hundreds. worked at or had access to a plant that used titanium. This fact alone reduces the number of potential suspects from millions down to only a few hundred. That's a big fucking step. So the tie would have been worn by managers, as we said, or engineers and metalworks plants. The spiral aluminum chips are only made by using metalworking machinery. And since they were found on the tie, that suggests that he was either an engineer or a manager who went out on the floor. And the only the managers, as you said, are engineers could wear the ties. And it was probably a clip on because you're around said machinery sucks it off. You don't die. So, that's a whole lot of shebang on this. Mike, a couple questions for you. A, what are your thoughts on the whole deal? And B, do you think this could ever be solved? Will we ever know who Dan Cooper really was? I See, I have a feeling, just like, you know, with, with, just like with Amelia Earhart, when they keep finding these little bits and pieces of evidence every once in a while, I think, like, you know, a hundred years from now, someone's going to find, like, a chunk of skeleton or something, you know, out there in the woods and, and put these pieces together, possibly. I don't know. But I wonder, like, We're why didn't the FBI... says this belonged to Dan Cooper. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. My name's D.P. Cooper. Um, but I, I wonder, like, since the government had all this time to set up the parachutes, give him the cash, all that stuff, why they didn't put some kind of tracking device in either the bag of cash or the parachutes? I mean, yeah. they had... You know, back in Vietnam, they had these little transmitters that were like, no joke, designed to look like pieces of dog shit or monkey shit that they would drop out of planes Here's so that they'd be invisible on 20, the ground. $20 bills and some monkey shit, sir. <laughs> some monkey shit. Yeah. He'll never Don't ask why. But Just like, take it. No, take it. Take it. Don't ask why. Stop asking. Take it. <laughs> <laughs> but they could have sewn that into the bag or something. You know what right. I mean? You would think they would do something to, to track you know uh, where he landed. Other than just you know, taking note of all the serial numbers on the bills. Yeah. I mean, you know, what, what are we going to do? Spend, you know, two hours taking pictures of money, or maybe we should think of a way to track again. This goes back to the Keystone cop bullshit that John was talking about. Like, you know, they're, they're worried about tracking individual bills instead of figuring out where the guy is. I mean, that's just not, 
not well, smart thinking. And this isn't the first or the last time that they use serial numbers to to try to track stolen money. But the reality is, how many cash transac- transactions take place on a daily or weekly basis mm-hmm. in this country that the banks then, th- they don't make it to a bank. They go well, from one person to one company to another to another, and it never makes it to a bank. And so no one's I, recording those serial I, I looked this up. I looked up the answer to this, actually. I'm glad you brought that up. So every denomination has a life expectancy. Um the paper that they use on hundreds is nowhere near as durable as the paper that they use on dollar bills and such. And so, and I, I don't remember the time, but like your average $20 bill has a life expectancy of like eight to 12 years, something like that. And all those bills are returned. Eventually the serial numbers are tagged and then they shred them and they actually use the shredded bills for building materials. They Confetti put it, for the end of concerts. Similar, but they use <laughs> it for pen. like building materials. And so they figured if they were ever put into circulation. And that is how Trump gets the valuation on all of his buildings. It was made from a billion dollars. <laughs> <laughs> and and so you look at it like that, though, like this money has never realistically been put into circulation because it would have came back out by now four or five times over and been cataloged and destroyed. Unless it's sitting in a bank vault somewhere, you know, not a bank vault, but a someone's lockbox or something like that. I I just well, not my turn yet. Mike, you did say a skeleton, so you're of the mindset you think he probably died. Yeah, I mean, you know, all I'm thinking of is you know, pitch black getting dumped over. I don't know if if you guys or anyone listening, if you if you have seen aerial shots of the forests out in Washington and Oregon, like. It is just another world. I mean, it is like a black blanket of trees. They're so thick out there that even if he's an experienced jumper, even if he pulls the chute and it works, you know, that at that short altitude or whatever, like you still either going to have to do this pinpoint landing on a clearing, maybe where there's a stream, which would explain the money. But like, other than that, you're, you're going into trees like Rambo first blood style and you're going <laughs> to be taking a tumble down. Right. Uh, I just, you know, and then you've got bears and, and Sasquatch and everything else out there. That's going to try to eat you. Like, I don't know. Like, honestly, one of the things you know, like when, when you mentioned briefly the, the conspiracy possibly between like the flight crew and DB Cooper, like maybe they found a way to, you know, decoy like, oh yeah, he jumped and then, you know, sneak him off the plane somewhere or, or something. Like that's the only way I, I could see him surviving this right, thing. Cause just the, got off. the idea. Yeah, yeah. I said, mean, the jumping out, you're going to die. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, John, where where are you at? I'm actually on the opposite side of of Mike. Um, when I think of DB Cooper, I, I kind of think like a, a preliminary version or an early version of like Ocean's Eleven. Mm. I, I think of this guy. This guy was suave. He knew what he was doing. I think this was really well planned. I think. If you're a smart person who understands a few things, the the way money is circulated, the way if you if you do some research, you can figure out how this this might at least in 1971 how this might play out. So you'll know how it'll play out. So you plan for it. Uh, you 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 take that flight a few times. You understand where it's going to go. You you tell them what, the, what flight path you want. I think he jumped out, knew exactly where he was jumping at at what speed he was jumping because he dictated the speed. He dictated the course. I think he knew about where he'd land. He'd probably had been there before. I think he landed. I think he probably had a pack or something set up in those woods to help him out. He got, you know, he probably changed, put on some survival gear, got out, 
you know, probably had a truck or a car set up somewhere, drove somewhere. And my guess is that either he was foreign or he was an American who decided that he wasn't going to live in America anymore. And this was his, uh, this was his escape plan. This was his exit. He was a nice enough guy. He was just fed up with whatever he had going on in life and said, here's how I'm getting out of all of it. And so he was a really, really smart, well put together, well thought out dude who uh, to me, uh, the lack of evidence is the evidence. It's right. We couldn't find, we couldn't find the money. We couldn't find the parachutes. We couldn't find a body. Uh, we, all, I, I joke about them being Keystone cops, but you've got the full force and brunt of the FBI, along with some help with the, from the military, and you can't find anything. Right. Uh, in 1971, I, I think that's pretty surprising. But if he was really well thought out and moved quick and went from point A to point B to point C and had it all planned, I think he got away and I think he went to a foreign country. And, and you know, money, money in a foreign uh, American money spends well in foreign countries and it doesn't have to go back to the U.S. Mint. Like 90% of all $100 bills are outside of the U.S. And they never make it back to the U.S. Ever, Mint. Ever. Uh, that's what I think happened. And I think, I don't, I don't know if he's alive to this day because, you know, obviously it's been 50 years. If he was 35 or 40 at the he time, he and, mid, they figured he was in his mid 40s and 71. Okay. Well, so then obviously he's probably passed away by yeah. now. Uh, that's what I believe happened. I think he, he, uh, he was one of the very few successful, well thought out criminals. In order to. Like Ocean's Eleven. In order to. But I think. Go ahead. I was going to, on that point, I think, you know, he would have had to flee to a foreign country because the only way you're going to be set for life on 200 grand is, is to get to Mexico or somewhere else where you can stretch that out. Which is funny because he said take me to Mexico City. But also don't, don't forget that 200 grand in 1971 is a lot different than 200 grand today. True. So here's the thing. Yeah. If he, they didn't, he did not give the pilot a course. He just said, take me on a southerly course to Mexico City. So that to me tells me one of two things. Either he knew the area so well, he had given someone a range of where I'm going to jump out or him and the pilot or co-pilot or someone was in on it together. Like you said, this Ocean's Eleven shit, which $200,000 isn't a lot of money if you're going to be splitting it up with people. Um, so he either had a whole bunch of people that are going to be in on this $200,000 or he just said, fuck it and jumped out. Now the whole idea of him jumping out and not making it, I find incredibly interesting thought process because they never found anything, including flying over there with the fucking blackbird, thousands of troops, hundreds, if not thousands of ground people sweeping the area. Nothing was ever found. I don't know if he survived. I don't know anything. I want him to. It's one of those things where you just start rooting for the fucking air pirate. <laughs> start going, yeah. I hope. Well, here's he a fucking made it. Follow up question for all of us. Do you think the bomb was actually a bomb? No, no, not at all. Mike? No, I mean, no. If if, he, if he's genuinely trying to hold up the plane, especially back then, I mean, all you would need is some wires and flashing lights, and there's there's no flight attendant in the world say, that's going to. What he did yeah. say was, I'll do the job. He didn't say, I'll blow you up. He's all nonchalant, like, I'll do the fucking job. <laughs> yeah. I'll do this fucking Which job. Which actually points to a, a seasoned, uh, uh, a seasoned, not criminal, maybe, because that's more. No, the I was going to say, because he said it all suave and sexy. I'll do the job, like Frank Sinatra in Ocean's Eleven. <laughs> that's what I'm saying. It's seasoned the, fucking criminal. Yeah. 
you know? or that 70s porno I referenced earlier. It also That's true. That. The one you were in, right? Is that the one? So yeah. is it a possibility yeah. that we're both right, that he did have a hole in the bottom of the suitcase with his penis in it, but he also <laughs> escaped? <laughs> he opened the bag and it was just a Timex tied around his hog. And, you know, that scared <laughs> <me away. laughs> it takes a lick and it keeps on ticking, if you know oh. what I mean. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's it. Show's over. I'm calling it after that shit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, kids, that's our thoughts. What are your thoughts at home? Do you have a a, a certain suspect that you wish we had touched on? Do you do you think he's definitely dead? Do you think he's alive? John, how can they let us know their thoughts? Well, the first thing they can do is hop on Facebook and join our discussion page. Go to Hysteria Nation. Hop on Facebook, search Hysteria Nation. Join the conversation right now. Also, you can go to facebook.com slash hysteria 51 pod. That's where you're going to find all of our episodes, things like that. Yeah, also, just, just start basic page. If you like that, you'll get updates on the episode. Also, at hysteria 51 pod on Twitter, where you can give us a little tweet love. And also, if you can't remember all those, go to. That was my nickname in high school, tweet love. <laughs> <laughs> Hysteria51.com. And. While you're doing all that, leave us a voicemail. 773-669-7277. That is 773-669-7277. And we actually have a voicemail to play. Seabot, hit them with our new voicemails. Go with the decoder rings, guys. When in doubt, always get the decoder rings. I kind of can't even believe you need outside information on this. Go with the decoder rings. Always decoder rings. Thank you guys once again for calling us. As you can see, you call us. We're going to fucking play it. As is evidenced by that, we will play anything. <laughs> so wonderful, wonderful. And also a big shout out to our T public page, TEE public slash stores slash hysteria dash 51. Just go to T public search hysteria. 51. And we're seeing more and more of you picking up uh, hysteria 51 gear. We really appreciate it. Do us a favor. Send us a picture of you in your Hysteria 51 gear. We will prominently display it on our Facebook page. We might even put it on our website. That is absolutely true. And you got some homework this weekend. Tell a friend about the show. Get them listening like we did with our good friend, Mike Gonzalez. Mike, thank you a ton for being on the show once again. Always a pleasure. And we are looking forward to Larkspur Underground. Now I know it's underground. I know it's, it's, it's some serious shit. Uh, you heard right. the teaser during the break. We can't wait for Larkspur to come out. Mike, keep an eye out. And uh, Hysteria Nation, we will keep you updated on when Larkspur Underground debuts. I like it when you tease us like that, Mike. What can I say? <laughs> it's my specialty. <laughs> Makes me feel kind of funny. Like when I used to climb the rope in gym class. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so with that said, I've been Brent. I've been John. I've been Mike. He's been Conspiracy Bot. Stay woke, meet sex. Thanks for listening to Hysteria 51, a weekly oddcast of conspiracy theories, mysteries, and the unexplained. We'll be back again next week with more known unknowns. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, suggest a guest, or simply seek some truth, we'd love to hear from you. You can email the show at hysteria51podcast at yahoo.com and follow us on Twitter at hysteria51pod. You've been listening to a fourth hand joint.